So I'd like to begin with one of my favorite teaching quotes from Dogen, who said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. So what we've been doing here today is studying ourselves. Studying what does it mean to accept ourself. Not just to accept ourself as a self, but to accept the immediacy of what is here. Physical, energetic, emotional, cognitive. Immediate. What does it mean to accept, in a, in a very intimate way, this display of reality that's sitting here? And so, I think there are a few um, qualities that we can talk about um, that support this study of the Buddha way, this study of the self. And I kind of... I do something that the Buddha does, which I think is always a good thing to do. It, like when he teaches mindfulness, he actually gives it three qualities. If you, see, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, he says, um, uh, uh, Sati, there are three qualities. One is ardent, mindful, and fully aware. And those all make up mindfulness. Ardent, mindful, fully aware. Those are three components of a more kind of meta-mindfulness, bigger mindfulness sense of what Sati is. Sati is the word we translate as mindfulness. In some sense, I'm, I'm a little bit doing that with the term acceptance. That acceptance is not just one word, but there are three words or three qualities that I find really helpful to lump together if we think about acceptance in a very big way. And that's openness, acceptance, and intimacy. That they all go to making up what acceptance is about. So, let's start. Let's look at, at the idea of being open. And, and I am, the way I'm thinking about it is that openness is a precursor to acceptance, or it's the skin of acceptance. It's this first level of acceptance is simply to be open to our experience. That if we're closed, if we're shut down, if we're covered over, if we deny, if we pretend that the experience doesn't happen, we can't accept it. It's, it's impossible. It, it's what's needed at first for us to begin to really accept experience is simply to be open to the truth of it. Simply to be open to the experience of it. And I found this in the sports section of the Chronicle for my talk. And it's... Um, what it is, is a list of actual questions and comments that the Forest Service received from people who had been in the wilderness. Like, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. 
<laughs> or too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. <laughs> or please pave the trails so they can be plowed of snow in the winter. That's very practical, but not exactly opening to the experience <laughs> or accepting it the way it is. Or a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. <laughs> Maybe a Starbucks, right? <laughs> oh, God. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> well, this is actually my favorite. Need more signs to keep area pristine. <laughs> this is like, this is not open to one's experience of the wilderness. It's kind of, you know, wanting to impose our idea and our beliefs and what's comfortable. And part of studying the self is studying a wilderness in some way. It, it's an adventure. And if we keep wanting to impose our ideas and our beliefs and our history and the past, we won't be open to what's actually here. One of my favorite um, teachings lately has been from Suzuki Roshi, who, who said, when I realized that no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. When I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. And we all know that's true, but have we made it real? Do we live as if that's real? Do we really, do you notice the tendency of mind to immediately take things and start to put them in some history, some file, go through our database and see, oh yeah, that's like this. Oh yeah, I know that. We tend to overlay the past on the present so we can feel comfortable with what's here. We haven't trained, or we're not, our training hasn't reached a certain depth that we can actually do with the freshness of now, or the immediacy of now, or the and the, and the absolute mystery of now, you know, that we're all sitting here like this, this one time only, right? Never, it'll never happen like this again. And it's, it's amazing that it's happening at all. <laughs> to open to that freshness, that immediacy, that level of not even knowing exactly what it is that's happening, except that something is happening. And then to begin to accept it, get comfortable, embrace it, receive it, and become intimate with it. So I'd like to speak about these three qualities of openness, being open, of accepting, acceptance, and of intimacy of awakening. 
And I, I like words, so I like to look up words, and, and I find that often it really clarifies for me what does it mean? What does it mean to be open in our experience here? How does that relate to our practice? The dictionary has a number of meanings that are applicable to just sitting here, to just sitting and paying attention. To, to be open means to unclose, to make passage possible. Right? We need to be open just to let the teachings in, just to let the Dharma begin to have its impact on us, to begin to, to reveal its real jewels, its fruit, its delicious nectars of awakening. We need to be open, not closed. It says open means to unlock, to remove the covering. And one of the sufferings of our life is how we habituate reality. And that habituation covers us, it closes us. It, it creates a kind of uh, veil or a scab or over the, this freshness, this aliveness. And you know, you can see it in babies. They're just so fresh and alive, fluid, sensitive. And that sensitivity is, we're not trained how to stay sensitive with the dukkha, with the suffering of human life. Because it's inevitable, the difficulties. I was in, sitting in somebody's office and it says, and there was some sign, it said, love as if you've never been hurt. That's a beautiful teaching. Because we will be hurt. It's inevitable if you love. There'll be pains in the heart. If you have a body, there'll be pains of the body. If you have a mind, it'll drive you crazy sometimes. <laughs> but our training gives us the possibility, the orientation, the tools to be with the pain or the hurt or the discomfort or the suffering and not to shut down to ourselves or the world. Not to scab over. And, you know, I could give many examples. The simplest example is to look at the Dalai Lama, who's lost his whole life, in the conventional sense, right? He lost his whole world. He was the leader of a, of a you know, independent country and culture that's tragically gone in many respects. And the Dalai Lama has one of the most open hearts of anybody you'll ever meet. And he's fun. He likes to have fun. He laughs. His joy is as deep as his sorrow. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And he, it's not that he doesn't feel pain. He really you know, he knows pain. He, he weeps. Somebody comes from Tibet, escapes from Tibet, comes over the highest mountains. He wants to see them when they come to Dhamsala. And, he, and the first question he says is, tell me. Tell me what happened if they've been in jail or tortured or whatever it happened. And they tell him. And he weeps with them. <coughs> but he, his ground, he studied the self. 
And so he's, quote, forgotten the self. The self isn't so reified, solid, concretized. And so things move through. And then his heart is free. His heart is beautiful. I'm, the, I'm, I'm talking about him, the image comes of when he was here at Spirit Rock once teaching. And he was just bouncing around like a kid, you know, really happy, playing, pretending to be a bunny rabbit. <laughs> really, he was, he was teasing the meditators, you know, about don't meditate too much, you know. <laughs> I shouldn't say that to you. <laughs> you haven't heard that? Pardon? You haven't heard that? I haven't. Um, so we, we close down, we cover over just from life, just from dukkha, from suffering. We end up with taking a defensive stance towards life. We don't realize we can let the whole thing move through us. Just move through us. Sometimes when you've been sitting a lot and you drive, one of the interesting phenomena is it's like you're just sitting there and the whole thing is moving through you. It's driving through you. It's an interesting shift of perception that happens at times. And it's a beautiful shift to begin to see that. That this whole life is moving through us. Part of what we see, even on a day like today, is the rigidity, the holding, the patterning starts to release even a little bit. We're a little softer, or we're a little, we're, we're losing our ground a little bit. Maybe we're a little disoriented. We feel a little odd, or anything like that. It's, that's fine. It's part of the practice, part of beginning to forget the self, as Dogen says. To open means, interestingly enough, to make known. To make known. And these even you can hear in the instructions that so much of what we're doing is we're knowing. We're making things known. We're not just being unconscious to what's happening in the present moment. We're knowing the present moment as a lived, felt sense, immediate reality. Moment by moment by moment whether it's characterized more by feelings or by sensations or by sounds or by the process of thought, doesn't really matter, to be honest. It's the knowing that is very important. And it's important because it points us to something that's not bound by the sensation, by the thought, by the feeling, by the emotion, by the sound. That there's something not bound not caught. The knowing is actually quite free. So we, it's important to begin to get familiar with the knowing itself. Another interesting um, definition of open means to burst and discharge as in an old, like an old wound. To burst and discharge. And this is really points to the healing quality of mindfulness, of being present, of meditation, of being awake in this way. 
that one of the things that will happen for people on a day long or in longer retreats is that the pains of life will actually come to the surface. Whatever is undealt with, unmetabolized, undigested, it'll come forward. So if you found yourself feeling angry or grieving or fearful or confused in some way that felt old or you were surprised it came because we were going to do a day on accepting, it's actually quite, quite normal and quite part of the process. Classically, we would say, oh, it's the kalesas, the defilements being purified. That's the old language. It's the defilements being purified. The new language is we're just metabolizing our experience of what's been undigested. <clears throat> and there is a healing that takes place with awareness itself. It's maybe, I think of it as one of the magical qualities of awareness. I, I, it doesn't make any sense in any kind of way except I know it's true. That there's something about a, a paying attention that is, it's, it's, it's medicine. And the Buddha was often referred to as the, the great physician, the great healer. And he, he diagnosed the problem of suffering and the cause of suffering, and he prescribed the cure, which is letting go and cultivating a path that leads to letting go. And then open also means to develop or to become receptive as a child's mind we begin to regain our natural receptivity, our natural uh, um, um, pliability, fluidity of mind, sensitivity. You know, one way we can understand the training is resensitizing ourselves, allowing our senses to really come alive all the way. And, it, and especially in a longer retreat, at a certain point it just happens where all of a sudden you walk outside and it's like, oh, you, you're seeing like for the first time or like you haven't seen for years. Or you hear a sound and the sound, it's not just through your ears, it's just you, you're, you're rung when the bell is rung. It's that kind of hearing. Or all of a sudden you feel your heart open and it's not because you're doing anything, it's because the Dharma's doing you. You do your practice and the Dharma will do you. You don't have to do the Dharma. Pay attention. Stay awake. Be open, accepting, kind. And the Dharma will reveal the fruits of the Dharma, which is our essence, who we are in essence, our nature. When, when the heart is open, really what we're seeing is really who we are. We're not making something happen. It's much more un, uncovering, unfurling, unveiling what's actually here. I'm, I'm definitely using actually too much today. Really. I don't like that. I'm accepting it, but I'm not... <laughs> And 
as I was suggesting earlier about acceptance, to be open means that we are open, and this again from the dictionary, it means ready and free for engagement. If we pretend that what's happening is not happening, we can't respond. We can't be mindful even. Right? Everybody shut their eyes and pretend that you feel great when you don't feel great. Doesn't work. <laughs> Mindfulness doesn't work. Like, okay, I'm going to feel you know, totally happy right now. And, and I feel like shit. Really. Happy, happy. Just doesn't work. We have to be open to really what's here. And, and one of the mysteries is that we can begin to trust what's really here. So, this openness and this level of acceptance, beginning to accept our experience, has two parts. And I mentioned it briefly, but maybe not enough today, which is there'll be the direct experience and then our reaction to the direct experience, however we feel about the direct experience, whatever internal reaction we might have. So if I ring the bell, Some people love the bell, right? Some people are like, is he going to ring that bell again? Some people don't care about the bell. And what's interesting is those responses can switch around. You know, you love the bell most of the time and then, you know, then, you know, I hit it too loud or too soft or too glaring and then it's like, oh, even though you love the bell, you don't love it that time. But it's all sound, right? The fundamental experience is it's sound for everybody. But then the internal experience generally has a secondary reaction, which is liking, not liking, or neither. And we want to be aware of all that. We want to study all of that. We want to include all of that. We want to accept all of that. And again, for me, this is one of the beauties of um, a day like today or a meditation practice in general is how broad the acceptance is because it means we don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to fix ourselves. Everybody get this? This is not a practice of fixing. It's a practice of awakening to see what's here on the deepest level. And paradoxically, it's in this acceptance that we begin to go deeper with practice. And so if we don't have to fix ourselves, we don't have to live according to some standard that somebody made up or that we've made up. We can, we can, we can um, 
live more in the immediacy of reality. We can see what, we can be curious and interested about what's actually here, not trying to fit ourselves into some box or idea or mold, which we can't fit into anyways. Have you noticed that? It's just not how human beings are. We're much more alive and mysterious than that, than any mold, than any idea, than any belief, than any standard we might be holding ourselves to for whatever reason. And so to be open means to be open to our closeness. Being totally closed is fine, not a problem. It's a paradox. Paradox is a very important practice. So we can be open to being covered over, veiled, locked up. And if we can open to that, that will lead to release, to freedom. Because awareness, mindfulness, has this magical property both of healing and of awakening. Thomas Merton put it more poetically. He said, True love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart is turned to stone. True love and prayer is learned in the hour when love has become impossible and the heart has turned to stone. You know, so often, and I, I still see this in my own mind, we have this idea, oh, I'm going to go meditate and do opening and acceptance and it's just going to unfold and I'll feel great. And We don't actually really want the hard stuff. You know, we don't want the heart to turn to stone. And I mean, it makes sense we don't want it. But we really, what I'm suggesting is we don't see the value. We don't know until we've sat with it until we've sat with it and seen what can happen even when there's no love. To see that that's where love comes from. There's a story in the Buddha's teachings, a very poignant story of the Buddha and his son Rahula. And there's a few stories of the Buddha teaching his son, one when he's seven years old, one when he's about 18, one a little older. And this story is when he's 18. And, and Rahula is walking, has joined the, the, the monastic order of his dad and is, you know, practicing. And one day he's walking, they're going for alms rounds, and he's walking behind his dad and he's looking at how beautiful and kind of radiant his dad is. You know, it's, it's a Buddha. He looks good. Good <laughs> looking guy. And he's got a nice glow on, you know. He's, he's been meditating. And Rahula is thinking, at least in the commentaries, it says, in the story it says this. It says, oh, the Buddha turned around and says to the Rahula, Rahula, whatever... Whatever there is, whether it's form or feeling or perception or consciousness or um, thought formations, whatever it is, don't take it to be I, me, or mine. It's not I, me, or mine. So he gives him a little teaching on anatta, on selflessness, which is, which 
the common what the commentaries say though is oh Rahula's walking behind the Buddha, he's seeing how good he looks, and he's thinking, Well, I'm the Buddha's son. You know, I I look good too. You know, I'm I'm gonna look like that when I'm a little older. And so the Buddha admonishes him. You know, with his omniscience he reads Rahula's mind. So Rahula, who's a pretty sharp sharp guy, he he thinks to himself, Well, I've been admonished by the Buddha today. Maybe I'll forget about alms rounds. I'm just gonna go sit with this. And he goes and sits. And while he's sitting, he's sitting down and Sariputta, who happens to be walking by, one of the senior disciples, kind of just says to him, he says, mindfulness of breathing is really good, and walks by. And so, you know, this is how it happens sometimes, right? You could be sitting here and somebody might walk by and say, give you the transmission. Um, so Rahula later, he practices, and later that night he goes to his dad, he says, well, how do you do this? How do you do this mindfulness of breathing? You know, which is really part of what we have been doing here today. How do we do it? And the Buddha gives him a teaching, a beautiful teaching. It's actually quite a big teaching. But the part that I, I just want to mention is that he uses this imagery of the earth, of water, of fire, of air, of space, of the elemental nature of things, and suggests that our mind have those qualities that our mind include those qualities, when, uh, that our mindfulness include those qualities. <laughs> it's actually a very poignant teaching because it's a teaching that was given some 25 or 2600 years ago now. <coughs> and it's poignant because I don't know if we could actually give the same teaching now. And you'll hear, you'll hear what the Buddha says. i got a couple different translations. I think I'll give you the Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says, develop a mind that is like the earth. Develop a mind that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts is, it could be anything, a sound, a feeling, a thought, a sensation. Those are the contacts with the mind. And some are agreeable, some are disagreeable. Have you noticed that today? Everybody had at least one agreeable thing and maybe one disagreeable thing? And so, and so the Buddha says, develop a, a meditation like the earth. I'm just going to see how... In, in um, the other translation, he says, develop the meditation in tune with the earth. It's also a nice way to say it. For when you are developing the meditation in tune with the earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not stay in charge of your mind. So he's giving you, he's giving us the teaching on the, on the flavor of mind, of the vastness of mind, the bigness. And then he continues, he says, just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. And when you develop meditation like this, whatever sensory impressions come, you'll not have to react to, they'll not stick, basically. 
And he continues, he talks about develop meditation like water, where everything is received, everything's washed in the water, everything can be immersed in the great oceans. Or like fire, where everything is burned, everything is, it can be put in a great fire. Or like the air, which blows on or touches everything, regardless of its form. Or develop a mind like space, which is not established anywhere. Develop a mind like space, which is not established anywhere, and embraces everything, puts everything in context. Everything arises in space, in the space of our consciousness. And it's a beautiful, very beautiful image for being, and he's talking about just mindfulness of the breath, as well as mindfulness of anything else. And of course, what's poignant is we see we can't quite do that with the earth anymore. We can't quite do that with the waters anymore. We can't do that with the air. We can't throw everything into the earth or the waters or the air. In the Buddha's time, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the same impact as it is now. So it's a very poignant teaching from the Buddha. And so this is a kind of spacious openness, a vast openness, where nothing is excluded. Nothing is excluded. Now, where openness, I believe, begins to tilt over into a, a fuller sense of acceptance is through compassion, is through warmth, is through the heartfulness of mindfulness. But actually, there's no mindfulness without heartfulness. It, it's too dry. It's too, it's too um, disengaged, dissociated, unembraced. That we need the heart for mindfulness to really function, and for acceptance to really be here. When one of the most succinct teachings of the Buddha, he said, "Because we hold ourselves dear." we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. Because we hold ourselves dear, because we value ourselves, we value this precious human birth, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful, caring self-regard, a euphemism for mindfulness, both day and night. That the attention we're paying right now to our direct experience we want to let that be imbued with our heart, with the goodness of our heart, with the kindness of our heart, with the carefulness of our heart. So it's not a dry or cold mindfulness. It's mindfulness inseparable from compassion, from friendliness, from loving-kindness, from appreciation, from generosity, from gratitude. All of those are, are part of what's here, ultimately. And it's needed because we're asking you to do a radical thing. We're asked to do a radical thing. 
As Carl Jung once said, he said, the most difficult thing is to accept oneself completely. To accept oneself completely. And that's, that's all we're asking you to do. <laughs> accept yourself completely. Remember that first poem that I kind of, uh, I said, uh, Izumi Shikibu? No part left out. All of it. The whole show. The whole catastrophe. All those things we think we need to fix or reject or deny. All those things that don't meet any some standard we think we're supposed to have of being a certain kind of person or a certain something. Even a certain kind of Buddhist. We haven't yet seen that, as they say in the tantric traditions, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. How could it, how could it be any other way? Are we going to cut off part of ourselves? Are we going to deny part of ourselves? And I want to be careful here. It doesn't mean we're going to act on every part of ourselves. And that's really the razor's edge of this practice, is not to deny, not to suppress, not to repress, but not to act out either. There's definitely um, um, the place for wise discrimination about how we act. So take a moment and just reflect. What, what if anything, but what... What did you reject today? What do you reject in yourself? What part of yourself is not okay to be here, to be part of this practice? You know, what, what did you get, you know, maybe you got messages, oh, my, your emotions are too big, you shouldn't have those emotions, or, you know, why don't you get it together, or, or, you know, or you need to think more, you need to think less, or you need this, or you should be taller or shorter or bigger or smaller, whatever it is. Just noticing what parts of ourselves we judge, we reject, we think we have to fix or get rid of. It's startling to, to get that spiritual life goes through us, not around us. And a little bit what I'm speaking to here is the uh, 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 important question, you know, important question, which is the question of transmutation or transcendence. Question of transformation or transcendence. And there's different philosophical bases for each. Meaning, do we transcend what's here, or do we go right, do we use what's here as the basis for awakening? So, I like to reflect on this question periodically. What am I rejecting? What do I deny? What's hard to be with? And, and it changes, actually. I mean, when I first gave this talk, it was very clear. The hardest thing for me was that I, I was a competitive meditator. <laughs> I was very judgmental of that. 
I thought, oh, you can't be a competitive meditator, Eugene. You're a teacher, and you're this and that. What? Who are you competing with? Of course, that wasn't the right question. I mean, it was part of the right question, but it didn't matter. Actually, at the time, I was sitting at a retreat here. I was actually on this retreat, the two-month retreat. And I was sitting at a very close friend of mine was sitting, and we were competing with one another. <laughs> we were. It was very clear. Who could walk up the hill slower? <laughs> and, uh, we'd sit at the table. Who was eating slower? <laughs> and kind of a pasana. Not really sports center. It's not on sports center, this kind of competition. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> Actually, I saw a great thing. I saw a new game that's out. It's made in Europe. And you put on some kind of headset, and the other person puts on a headset, and there's a ball. And the, and the way to move the ball across the table is to go into whatever those things are, from alpha to beta to theta. The more calm and relaxed you get, the more the ball moves. So the calmer you are is how you win the game. <laughs> so that's an interesting competition. But the more relaxed and calm, that you have the more power. More power. It's, it's actually very good. I wanted one, and I, I emailed them. It was like four thousand, five thousand, <laughs> five thousand euros actually. So I'll wait till it, you know, two years. It'll be down to hundred and fifty. <laughs> but um, um, so I was paying attention, you know, I was actually, I was suffering with the competition. I was having a really great retreat, but I kept competing whenever I was around my friend. And of course, the competing is like, it, uh, you know, it just felt ridiculous, and I was being judgmental of myself, and I felt, you know, bad about it, and I shouldn't be competitive. And finally, I went in for an interview with Jack Cornfield, and I'm telling Jack what's happening and I'm competing. And Jack was like, started to kid me a little bit. He started to joke with me. He said, oh yeah, I see you. I, see, I know you. He said, he said, I know you're competitive. And if, you, if you've been looking, you know I'm competitive also. You know? And so he kind of, you know, he was, and he was doing it in this Indian guru accent because he likes to fool around. <laughs> oh yes, you're very competitive. And, um, and so he did a couple things that were very skillful here. One, he first of all, he normalized it. Because it's true. You ever notice how when you think you're the only one, it feels really bad? And then you hear, oh, like everybody's, you know, having sex fantasies on retreat, then it, you don't feel so bad about it. <laughs> And, and he did another thing which was very skillful, which is he undercut the judgment by joking about it, right? If you're laughing, you can't really be judging. So, and he, and it was like, and I was sensitive. You get sensitive after a while on retreat. So I was, I like, I, you know, I started laughing, but also weeping with the release of the tension of feeling like, oh, I, it was bad to be competitive. And because then he kind of, as, and as that was happening, he kind of slipped in the, the teaching, which was, and then he said, and you must embrace it fully. You must accept it fully. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't even considered accepting my competitiveness. <laughs> and, that, I just, and I'm a good yogi that way. If the teacher tells me to do something, I'll do it. And so I did. It was like, okay, let it rip. 
I'll, I'll nail this guy. <laughs> and so, but what happened was, what was interesting was backing off the judgment, the idea there's something wrong, the idea that I can't include the competition as part of being mindful was, oh, it got really big. And, it, and really, it, it went way beyond my friend. It really, it stopped being so personal. It got very archetypal, to be honest. And to be honest, I saw the worst, some of the worst of human beings, some of the worst qualities. And I won't even tell you because I'm a little bit shy about that. But, but really, it was like, oh my God, this is here. Except I didn't feel, oh my God, I felt like, okay, let's see what's here. And it came and it was very strong for a day, two, three. And then all that stuff went away, but this incredible energy was left. This beautiful energy was there. The kalesas, the defilements, self-liberated. The comparing, the, the self, self-liberated. The idea of me and him and how I have to get to... That all went away. That all released. Just by being mindful and not denying anything. And, you know, um, it doesn't always quite work that smoothly or that immediately, you know, when it really went through in about two or three days. Sometimes it takes two or three months for things to work their way through. Sometimes it takes two or three years. Maybe sometimes it takes two or three lifetimes. But what else better do we have to do, <laughs> really, than to pay attention to this mystery that's sitting here? This, this beautiful mystery that awakens. And then today, when I was considering, there were a few other things I had that's hard. Um, when I thought about what did I reject, neediness sometimes, but not, it's not a big deal anymore. Um, lack of concentration often for meditators is one of the hardest things especially in Vipassana practice. Like there's some idea, oh, if you're not concentrated, you're not doing it right. But, but what I would like to um, remove is the supposition or presupposition that you're doing it anyways. I mean, we do our best, but the Dharma does us. It's not, it's not up to us, ultimately. We can't make awakening happen. We can till the ground. And we don't know because, because we don't have control over all the conditions. The conditions are much bigger than any moment, ultimately. And then some people reject really nice parts of themselves, like their loving heart, because they've gotten hurt, or their sweetness. It was, it was definitely one of the things I rejected as a young man. and For many years, it was like, oh, I didn't want to be sweet. That didn't seem like a good thing. You know, the people who I admired were much more streetwise and hip and cool and tough and sweet. And people, a lot of times, would see me as sweet. It was like, stop, I don't want to be sweet. <laughs> Until I was liberated a bit by this, by a fellow named Walter Payton. Oh who few people know who Walter Payton is. They're mostly from Chicago. Who knows? <laughs> Walter Payton was a football player, and his nickname was Sweetness. 
And I mean, he was a great football player. But when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's cool. If Walter Payton can, can own his sweetness, I can own my sweetness. That's very helpful. Well, Walter's part of the greater sangha here. Wow. I'm like, I've got about three more pages. Okay. Um, so it's good to reflect and see what's unacceptable, what's hard to accept for you, and then to really question that. What would happen if you do accept it? Whether it's your fear or your irritation or your judgmental mind. Not necessarily believing it, but accepting it. Or accepting your pain, your sadness, or your loneliness, or your neediness or your wanting, or your desires. One of the things that will happen, that can happen, is that we can start to see that reality is not a mistake, that reality is not a problem, that it is the doorway, it is the pathway, it is the gateway to awakening. And it's right here, always right here, always right here. And so we don't have to get rid of experience, or we don't have to vipassanize experience. <laughs> like spiritual euthanasia, you know, I'm going to just be concentrating, get rid of this stuff. And I love concentration, I love samadhi practice. But real samadhi practice is just having the composure to be open to anything. The presence and the hereness and richness. And also, sometimes we need to really spend some time with things. Let's see if I can find this. Oh. This is from Hafiz. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I want to get rid of these emotions, this sadness, or this anger. Not necessarily. Hafiz says, don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it ferment. Let it season you as few human or even divine beings can. There is something missing in my heart tonight that makes my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. That our suffering seasons us in a certain way. It tenderizes us. If we, if we have the training and the skills to allow it to come, and be here for a while, to live within its shadow, its light, and to go. And then we begin to move into a different relationship. The acceptance comes from a different place. It's not that we have to do the acceptance, we see it's the way. As Ajahn Suchito says, he says, what sustains the spiritual life is that it becomes independent of one's own volition becomes independent of one's own volition. It has a life of its own that one comes to recognize and serve. And we learn to recognize and serve what's here. And we serve it with our presence and our kindness and our wakefulness and our attention. We serve it with our wisdom. And our wisdom comes by embracing it, opening to it, and being intimate. This is acceptance as the gate to freedom. 
the gate to awakening. From one of my non-Buddhist teachers, Hamid Ali, he said, to accept what is, we need to accept what is, not just mentally, but with the whole of our being, intimately in this way. Acceptance of my experience of myself means being here now without manipulation. The more I accept, the more I am in the present. The more I, the more I am in the future, wanting to achieve, even wanting acceptance, the less I am accepting myself. Acceptance feels like taking a risk. It's like jumping off a cliff. I accept the more that I trust in reality. And it's a quantum leap, for there are no securities, no guarantees. When this state of abandon is realized, I find that I am alive as if for the first time. It is the first time. It is the first time I am alive, awake, bodhi, as the Buddhists say. And it happens whenever I accept myself, let go of preconceptions, and just be. The more I accept, the more I die, and the more alive I am. Total acceptance with the entirety of my being is complete death. And the complete death of the manipulative ego is full rebirth, awakening. This is a profound level of acceptance. Jumping off the cliff. What's beautiful, as Joseph Goldstein likes to say, is you jump, and at first you get afraid, oh, you're going to splat when you hit the ground. And then you realize there's no ground. So there's no splat. There's just here, now. And then the last piece is what I'm speaking about is intimacy. And it's in the Dogen quote, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken or to be intimate with all things. Depends on the translation. To let go of the self, to relax the sense of self. To not be so tied with our history, with our identity, with our beliefs, with our conditioning, means to become intimate with each moment. And in Zen, they, they really speak to this so well. They say, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And the word intimate comes from intus, means of the hidden of the hidden, that intimacy implies a mystery, that the immediacy of right now implies a mystery. And to, doesn't mean we'll always, every moment of our life, be in touch with the mystery, but don't forget the mystery. Don't forget how mysterious it is. Any of it doesn't matter. The mystery, the bench is mysterious just appearing here right now. <laughs> or the bell. Who thought of a bell? How did that happen? Right? Who thought of a bell? 
Who thought of all your thoughts today? Where did they come from, all those thoughts? Really, where did they come from? You know, we say, oh, they came from your, your mind. Where's your mind? Don't forget how mysterious things actually are. In the Tao they say, I can't remember what they say. That's how mysterious it is. <laughs> Something went where, 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 I can't remember. All I know is they say the mystery is deepest. Something. Oh, that's great. Perfect. <laughs> should, if I was a true Zen teacher, I'd end right now. But I want to say a few more things because I'm a Vipassana teacher. <laughs> we, were, we were at a retreat last week in uh, IMS. I was teaching with my friend Tara Brock and, and two other friends who are trainees. Uh, Dor- Dory, I, can't, I don't know their names. Dory and you. You, Byrne, and Dory. Something. <laughs> What's it, what is it? Langevin. Langevin, thank you. And, um, and um, at the end of the retreat, we were giving feedback and and um, and you was saying something. He said, oh, "I think you know. I think I want to give shorter talks, like half hour talks." And Tara and I was like, "Please don't do what we do. You know, give short talks. But, you know, we have to be ourselves, right?" Anyhow, it's a little aside. Um, I want to say a few words about intimacy because um, because the when we really get present with here, with now, it is intimate. We, we ourselves, we can be intimate with ourselves. Our consciousness, our experience, the aliveness that's here. And you know how when we maybe are first meeting somebody, we, we talk about in, being intimate. Right? How Oh, we're getting intimate with somebody. And what is that we're pointing at? Partly we're pointing at the openness of that experience. Like we're really, usually really open to somebody who we don't know but we like. And we want to get to know and we're being intimate with. And we're really accepting of them. And it doesn't mean we don't see their faults. We do. We'll see them. But we're so enamored that we can accept their faults totally for about six months. <laughs> There's a lot of acceptance. And then it's maybe, if you stay with them, it's 10 or 15 years, and then you can really accept them again. It takes a while. It's, it's, then it's a training a little bit more. First blush, it's, it's inspiration. <laughs> Sylvia Borstein says the first 15 years are the hardest in relationships. <laughs> and so we're drawn, we're also drawn to the, to, we don't know who the person is and we love that not knowing. They don't know who we are. And we love, they want to learn about us and we want to learn everything about them. And what's beautiful about reality, what's really mysterious about reality, is no matter how much we know, there's an infinite amount more that we could learn. That reality is infinite, which is one of the reasons it's mysterious. It's so beautiful to be here, to, today, here, and, and just 
practice together to see what what is this? What is this? And so we open, we're accepting of the truth of the moment because we want to know when we're intimate. One of my friends, two of my friends, I think of when I give this talk, um, is Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, who were, Kitty Sarah was a monk for 15 years, Tanisara was a nun for 12 years, and they fell in love in the monastery without having ever touched and barely even talked, but they fell in love, and they trusted it, which is not only a rare thing, and not only a difficult thing, but wasn't exactly what their friends thought they should do in the monastery, right? And they left the monastery, which is technically called disrobing, appropriately. <laughs> and, and they ended up together, and they're still together now. It's over ten years. I met them first when they were three years out of the monastery, and it was, it was not just easy, right? It was, it was actually traumatic to leave the whole life they dedicated themselves to. And then, and also to be on the outside of that life. And, um, and I, I was really interested in, in their relationship and how it was going. And I, I was talking with Kitty Sarrow. And because I think of relationship as one of the cutting edges of our practice. As, as lay people, we're going to have relationship, most of us at least some form or another anyways, but often intimate relationship. And I said to Kitty Sarah, how is it? How is it to practice in relationship after all these years as a monk? He said, and he's got this southern drawl, which is really charming. Oh, well, it's really, it's not so different. It's like having two people under one robe. <laughs> <laughs> and And... People hear that different ways. <laughs> but really what he was saying was, it's like being mindful. It's like the mindfulness gets bigger. It's the same paying attention to have two people under one row. And that's the movement of our practice, is that we start here, but we don't end here. That we learn how to study the self, to pay attention, to open, to be intimate with ourselves, to accept what's here as a doorway to everybody. Because what's here is uh, a representation of what's in every seat. The sorrows and joys we share. And we study them here to begin with, but we don't end here. Much more the flavor of practice moves in the direction of what the Zen poet Ryokan, he said, um, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to embrace all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to embrace all the suffering people in this floating world that the presence we cultivate here, the acceptance we cultivate here, the kindness, the openness, the intimacy is just the beginning. That it doesn't end. That it becomes ultimately limitless.
last quote. This is from Sri Nisargadatta talking about awareness. He says, by being with oneself, by observing with intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it is there, you allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its energies. This is the great work of awareness. This is the great work that we do here. Let's sit for a moment, please. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.